This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. To receive a free copy of Bob Buford's classic book, Halftime, moving from success to significance, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, co-founder and co-host. Here's this week's interview by my partner, John Ramstead. All right, everybody, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. And I have a favor for everybody out there who's listening to this. And, you know, we've been able to, a lot of us have been able to get to know each other. I mean, just develop some incredible friendships over the last three years. And if you could help me, I would truly appreciate it. I was recently asked to submit a proposal um, to, if you guys have ever heard of TED Talks, right? TED is uh, Ideas Worth Spreading. And you have to give a, a talk that's between 14 and 18 minutes. And they asked me to submit a proposal. And I told them before I did that, I wanted to talk to every one of you. And here's what I'd like. If you guys, you guys have gotten to know me, you know, everything that we've been sharing, um, uh, you really understand, I think, my heart and what, you know, what our vision, our mission is here. And I would love to hear from you. If you could email me, john at eternalleadership.com, and just let me know what you think that TED Talk should be about. What should either be that theme or those maybe those couple points that you really think we should teach or maybe just what that title should be. And I would truly appreciate your input as we're really kind of thinking through that process of what that kind of TED Talk would look like. So uh, just thank you, everybody, in advance. You're just such an incredible audience, and it's just been great getting to know everybody. So, and if, and if there's anything else I can do for you or our team can do for you, just let us know that also, john at eternalleadership.com. Now, uh, today, I'm really excited to bring you uh, John David Mann. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So John has just written a new book, and it's called The Recipe. And, um, you know, John is in, in, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about this, right? But uh, I really believe that, you know, this, uh, what is missing in this whole world of just developing as our best self, as a leader, as a husband, as a wife, as a father, in business, ministry, whatever you're called to, that, you know, there's so many times where we're trying to we we know that we're not at our best or our circumstances around us or the the outcomes in our life based on kind of who we are the decisions that we make is really not where we want to be and one of the things that we feel oftentimes is missing and i think this is a huge th- gap that the whole leadership industry has as a whole but it's the how how to get there and and john that is the recipe right we we need a recipe on how to put all this stuff together about who we are and how to put it together and what to work on and so this is something that's really been on your heart and you know you you really rose to prominence writing um, The Go-Giver with Bob Berg. And uh, that is one of my favorite books. We've had Bob on the podcast. And I would really encourage everybody who's listening, if you have not heard Bob Berg's interview on this podcast about The Go-Giver, it is the mindset, the attitude. If anybody out there is in business or is an entrepreneur and you have this attitude, trust me, it's going to put you leaps and bounds ahead in any area of your life that you want to measure for yourself. Because I think that book has sold, uh, 
uh, what, over a half a million copies in um, two yes. dozen languages, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah, that uh, is it. And what I love about it, um, and I think, you know, it's a very, it's, it's written as a parable. And I think yeah. it's, uh, you know, one of the most important, just the way it's written, parables, you know, that incorporates not only business, but life. And um, Adam Grant, if you guys have ever read the book Give and Take, um, he said it's one of the most important business books about business and life, you know, of our time. I mean, that's pretty high praise. And, and, uh, um, love Adam Grant's uh, book, right? The Giver and Taker, Give and Take. And I know that uh, Brian Tracy and Seth Godin and Glenn Beck have, uh, you know, really, you know, you know, praise your book. Now, this book, The Recipe, is your 24th book. So we're going to be getting into that and talking about that. But, you know, as I've gotten to know you, John, I mean, there's been so many, my goodness, your journey to where you're at now. Uh, I'm guessing you're, what, you're right around the age of 50, John? Right around that. Yes, very, very close. Actually, 63. So that's close. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it was at 50. You made a big pivot. So you're 63. At 50, that's right. At 50, you decided to become an author. And I know you've had some pretty significant you know, highs and lows in your life that I know is, uh, you know, looking back, um, I'm sure this is probably what led to really you know, looking at, you know, where the, this whole thought of the recipe even came from is you had to go through this. And so I'd really like to, you know, just start out and just have you share, you know, some of your journey so the audience can kind of get to know, you know, who you are, where you're coming from. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I mean, the recipe is a, is a story about a little boy, 14 year old boy, who's a seeker. Uh, he wouldn't probably call himself that, uh, but that's what he is. And I'm always intrigued uh, uh, with stories about seekers. The go-giver is the story of a seeker. Joe, at the beginning of the story, is looking for success. And he's looking for monetary success, but what he's really looking for is something deeper, although he also wouldn't have articulated it that way in the first few pages. He has to make some some real growth and uh, and maturation happen along the way before he he could come to the point where he, he really – even knows what he's looking for. Uh, me too. <laughs> I, I had no idea what I was looking for in my life. And, and part of the, <clears throat> excuse me, part of the struggle or, or challenge of my journey is that um, I, I really, it took me decades to kind of figure out, uh, you know, you, interrupt myself, you talk about a calling, you know, we all have a calling. Yeah. Um, the, the thing about a calling is that there's two parts to it. There's the call, and, and, you know, we know where the source of that calling comes from, and that source is going to be really clear, right? There's, there's no uh, laryngitis, there's no waffling, there's no ambiguity or, or ambivalence in that calling. But then there's the hearing. <laughs> and we, that's our job. And uh, I spent 50 years trying to hear what was that voice saying, that, that still small voice. Um, so I started out in life as a classical musician. I played the cello as a composer. My dad was a, a, a choral conductor. He was a specialist in Bach and Handel. And so I grew up kind of under his baton and under his, uh, his leadership. He was my first example of great leadership. Um, and and I, I, uh, even today, I approach writing sort of as a composer would. It, it's to me, it, there's, there's the meaning of the words, but there's also the music of the words and the structure, the arc of the story. Um, in, in any case, I was a musician for a while, and I went then into wellness and natural foods and nutrition. I went into business and sales and direct selling. I went into um, publishing and editing. I spent many years as an editor professionally 
which is uh, what I thought I was doing when Bob Berg came along and ruined my career. (laughs) uh, How that happened was this. Um, I was making my living as an editor, and my ambition at the time was to become a screenwriter. I was going to Hollywood. I was going to write screenplays for a living. And I had uh, written a screenplay on the life of the Apostle Paul, and it was called Paul. That was my play, my screenplay. And, and I was, uh, I'm was i still very attached to that screenplay. It's never been produced. I still have the ambition that one day it will be. But that's what I was working on when Bob tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, listen, I need you to write this book with me. And my attitude was, ah, this is like a distraction. Bob, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, this is not what I do. I don't have time for this. Go giver, I get it. Like, go getter, go giver. It's a play on words. I can see it. I get the concept. I don't know if I really see this thing working. <laughs> this is me, right? right. This is, um, uh, this is me with my faulty hearing, not quite getting the voice of the calling, right? Um, it, it is amazing how many wonderful opportunities I've almost missed by being my stubborn self. In any case, um, I said to my wife, uh, who was then my fiance, I said, you know, I, I don't really want to do this. I don't have time for this, but it's Bob. And, and you know, it's Bob. And so I got to at least listen because Bob is such a wonderful man, such a good friend. So one Christmas, we flew down to Florida and we went and visited Bob for a day at his home. And he and I started talking about this this book idea. And uh, I took it home. And a few weeks later, I had a little free time for a few days between editing this and editing that. And I doodled around with it. And, um, you know, John, for me, with every book, I'm going in a long ramble here to get back to your question. But uh, for every book I do, and you know what, every blog post I write, every piece of writing I do that's going to be something finished that goes out into the world, there's a moment where I'm doodling with something. It could be a piece of dialogue, a scrap of an idea, a description, or just a concept or something where I'm scribbling with a pen on a pad of paper, uh, and there's this spark, and I go, ooh, oh, I, that's that's real. Like that's, it's like it came to life. There's the sort of the point of conception of the, uh, of the thing. And this for me was that with a go-giver. It was the scene. It's actually fairly late in the book where Joe, the, the hero and his mentor Pindar go to hear a speech given by a woman named Deborah Davenport. Mm-hmm. And it's a speech about authenticity, which was inspired by my wife. That's something that she talks about a lot and something that she exemplifies a lot. And I started writing Deborah's speech, and it was real. And it was that moment where it was it was bigger than me. This wasn't like me coming up with these ideas. Not to sound too esoteric, but most writers will tell you this, regardless of their background or their faith or whatever. When you're really in the flow, when you're writing something, it's not like it's coming out of your head. It's like it's coming through your head. It's coming from somewhere else. Um, and, and that's... That was the feeling. I thought, you know, this is, this is exciting. So I wrote that, wrote that scene. I put it together. I sent it off to Bob, and he was like, holy cow, this is great. Uh, uh, we went back and forth and started bouncing ideas back and forth, and within six weeks, we had a manuscript. Um, and that's, um, and that's, how the, how, that's how the Go-Giver was conceived, although it took 
more than nine months for gestation and delivery, and there were forceps involved, and there was a lot of pain, and and you know probably some some medications and some and some 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 poor medical skills right there at the uh, at the final final point of delivery. Um, <laughs> But it's, that's that's to paint the long, twisted path of my career. I didn't start out to be a writer. It took me until 50 to figure out that that's what maybe I was. Um, and and it also took me, coincidentally, until about then to figure out uh, who I was supposed to be married to. And um, I, I am so grateful that that, that uh, message finally got through my skull. Um, and my message around that is to anybody out there who is – past the age of 20 or 25 or 30 and still wondering if, if there's the right person out there for you, my answer is yes. <laughs> the right person is there. You may not find them at 20 or 25 or 30 or 35 or 40. Um, you know, for me, it took half a century of sort of practicing this thing called my life to, uh, to discover the, the, um, my companion for life and my, and my career and my calling. So I finally got here. Well, and I'm glad you're here now. And you know, I would uh, love to ask you this question, John, because you know, you know, the ty- you know, this book is called the recipe, right? And it, um, you know, it's about loss, love, and the ingredients for greatness. And I, and I really, I, I have come to the conclusion that there's so much more potential in each of us, right? And, and we hear that so often. Uh, but you know what? Really, you know, thinking about that. But, you know, some of the things in life that you've gone through, right? I know you've had some, you know, tremendous business failures, right? Uh, Which I've been through myself. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, You know, if you're, you know, I know your your firstborn son, right? He passed away. Um, You know, you talked about some different marriages and, you know, maybe just, you know, so there's so many people I think, you know, I'm guessing, or I'd love to maybe your thoughts, right? What's in the recipe, it, has that been shaped and formed and kind of gestated from all these, you know, the, this journey that you've been through the last 60 years? You know, it, it started out as such a simple story, John. I mean, yeah. if, look, if you look at it on the face of it, as you say, the go-giver was a parable. The recipe is a parable. I, I love parables. I mean, maybe it's a little bit more novelistic. It's a little longer than the go-giver. But still, it's basically, it's a simple story. And it's a parable, that is to say, a simple story designed to teach some principles. Um, but I have always believed that for a parable to stand the test of time and really have an impact on people's lives, to have value, to make a difference in people's lives. It can't simply be a thinly dressed PowerPoint. <laughs> you can't just sit down and say, well, here are the teach- principles I want to teach. One, two, three, four, five. Great. So I need a I need a character. We'll call him Bob. And maybe Bob goes to meet a wise man. We'll call him wise man. And wise men will say, say, Bob, here's what you need to know. No, that's like, (laughs) that's a lecture. And that's boring. Nobody wants to read that. Um, In fact, parables have in in some circles kind of a bad name. There are a lot of people in business who say, ah, parables, I don't don't like those. Because they've seen a lot of parables that are, are, are just too simple. My belief is a parable needs to be like the richest man in Babylon or like Mm. the greatest salesman in the world or like the little prince or like one of these stories that has, yes, it's simple. Yes, it's short. And the rag picker, the rag picker. Exactly. My favorite books you just mentioned. Absolutely. Isn't it? Oh, and, and, and it's a simple story. 
but there has to, but there's depth to it. There, there, there's a real people in that story, and you don't have real people in the story unless you, you know, you bring your real self to it. Uh, and so, you know, I often say that you are not going to cry reading this book if I don't cry while I'm writing it. <laughs> um, and I believe that's that's the absolute truth. Uh, you're also not going to laugh at this story in this story if I don't if I don't laugh at my own jokes, um, which I do. But yes, uh, you're right. It started out as such a simple story. A young boy's lost his dad. He's going to learn. He has to go to work for this crusty old diner chef um, to initially to pay back for some vandalism he's done. Right. Mm-hmm. So he ends up in this kitchen, doesn't want to be there, angry at life, angry at the world, sort of circling the drain, got an attitude, chip on his shoulder. The chef kind of takes his prickly ward on and starts teaching him lessons of the kitchen and they turn out to be lessons for on life in life so it's sort of like the karate kid meets master chef uh that's the that's the concept of it in the course of the writing and when you're writing a book if you give it time to breathe and grow uh uh things happen that surprise you that you didn't plan we didn't have a subtitle when we started uh and and it was only in the process that things from charles's life my my co-author chef charles carroll that events from his life began to leak in and events from my life began to leak in um i did not lose my father at the age of 14 as owen does in the book and neither did chef charles but we've all lost something or somebody we've all suffered some difficulty some loss some tragedy and and the elements of the book sort of began growing into this subtitle and it's not just a string of words it's a story of loss love and the ingredients of greatness and and they kind of come in that sequence because that's i maybe the way that i've experienced those things um I, when I was, as you mentioned, when I was very young, my firstborn son, who, who, uh, interestingly was named Adam, hmm. like, um, like another firstborn son, um, uh, died at the age of 10. And I was in no way prepared for that. Uh, and, and if you had said to me at the time, well, John, how is this enriching your life at this time? I, I, I probably would have, um, punched you in the face or I don't know what cried or run away. I don't know. I didn't see. Yeah. Not a good question to ask somebody who's grieving. Exactly. I would not respond well to that question. No, no, no. At the time. And even a year later, even three years later, I don't know how long I, I, I don't, I don't, I would not have seen the value there, but, but looking back now, it has, um, you know, Emma Thompson, the actress, said this wonderful thing in an interview once. She said, I prefer the company of people who have, she said, I hate to say this, and I'm sorry that it's true, but I prefer the company of people who have suffered. They're kinder. Mm. And I think that there is something to that, that that difficulty, suffering, loss, and it doesn't have to be from death. It can be a friend who you thought was a friend who then betrays you, and so you lost the friendship. Or it can be, as you mentioned, a business failure, which I've had a few of those. I've seen the inside of bankruptcy court. I know what those things are like. I've had the uh, a, a very tall, big gentleman named Chris knock on my door at 11 o'clock and say, sorry, dude, I need your keys. And that was the end of my car. Um, so I, um, those are all losses, too, that are just as genuinely tragic and, and, and traumatic and hurtful as, as the death of a child or death of a spouse or death of a sibling or a parent. Um, and, and I think that those experiences can make you break or bend 
you know, like the old dying oak tree or like the, the young willow tree. It, it, it's They can make you a more bitter person, and some people do, through hardship and tragedy, just get weathered and bitter and crawl sort of inside themselves, and it's very sad to see, but it's completely understandable. But other people somehow take that loss and, and incorporate it, swallow it, bring it inside themselves, and, and don't step over it, and I'm using air quotes here, which you can't see because I don't believe you really can step over a tragedy, but they try to step over or around or back away from. There are people who don't do that, but who go through it, as you said, who go through that and bring it with them. Don't try to put it off at arm's length, but but let it be part of themselves and somehow use it to make themselves uh, um, a richer or deeper person for it. Well, I think I, I, actually, well, and I would agree with that. My, uh, yeah. you know, my my listeners uh, are pretty familiar familiar with my story. But just about five years ago, I had an accident that put me in the hospital for almost two years, and my oh, wife became my caregiver. We had oh. no idea if I would be able to communicate, work again, function, be a husband, be a father. Yes, And, you know, one of the things that uh, and, I mean, I'd love to dig into this a little bit is, um, you know, what is that difference between breaking and bending? And I, I think from my mm-hmm. perspective, the one thing that I had to hold on to every day was hope that tomorrow or sometimes even just the next five minutes. Uh, sometimes, yeah. I mean, the pain that I was in for such a long period of time and the uncertainty, the ambiguity uh, of going through uh, something like this. And well, <laughs> and for me, I had a reference because I was in a hospital yeah. where there were so many other people with severe brain injuries and spinal cord injuries. And watching some of these people that were more like the oak, I watched them break. I watched them, yes. you know, spiral yes. down into despair. And I got to tell you, uh, that scared me. You know, I think seeing that perspective... Um, was frightening sometimes, right? And I tried to do everything I could do to maybe even kind of take my eyes off myself and serve some other people. Yes. So yes. I think hope is powerful. Is it, you know, if you look at some of these things you've gone through, is there anything that maybe you've seen in yourself or in others that difference between kind of breaking and, and bending? Oh boy. You know, I think, I think there are three things and you, and the first thing you mentioned, it's so interesting. Uh, and actually I'm going to jot these three things down on a piece of paper. So I don't forget them <laughs> because they're all, they're all, I think they're all ingredients of that. Uh, um, and then you mentioned hope and it's so great that you mentioned that because, you know, you asked me in the, in the, the pre podcast interview, what was my favorite Bible verse? And, and it is, is always, I come back with Hebrews 11, one, there's this thing about hope and hope is such a, a, a widely written about aspect of the human experience because it's so vital. It's so necessary. It's the rope we hold onto when we're being dragged through the water, when we've fallen off the ship. And, and where does the, where does it come from? And this scripture says that faith is the substance of hope. I love the word substance. It means the thing that stands under. It's like faith is what stands underneath hope. It's like the, the sort of the, the, the bottom of the, of the ocean floor that you stand on when you're trying to grab for the rope with your arms. And I, I think that, that, you know, you ask what makes a difference between a, between a person who breaks and one who bends. I think faith is, is one of those things. And I don't necessarily mean 
an articulated, uh, a religiously described faith, because there are a lot of people who don't necessarily have that, again, defined, articulated faith, but there's something there's a sense inside that, and this would this would describe me at the age of 21 or whatever it was when my son died. Um, there's this sense somewhere inside that there that this is not just an accidental world. This is not just a a universe of coincidences and and protons bumping into each other. That there is a larger design here. There's something big going on, way way bigger than me, and that it is fundamentally good. There's something that this is all going toward that is good. Now, that's an awfully vague thing I just said, but that's enough <laughs> sometimes. That's, I, I think, what I had. I, I couldn't tell you what it is, but there's something that I think I'm holding on to. Every time I sit down to write a new book, the voice in my head says, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't even know how to get through this book. I don't even know where to start. I get that same thing that so many performing artists say. They get up on stage and go, oh, this will never work. It's worked in the past, but I can't pull the wool over their eyes this time. Uh, and for me to put my pen on the page, I have to reach inside and find this place that says there is a book out there that's waiting to be written and it's waiting for me to write it. And, and I know it and it knows me, and it's going to be good. It's going to touch someone's life. It's just, it's there. It's like this leap of faith. And then if you have, if you, you know, you grow to the point where you have words that wrap around that, you know, words of, of, of God and inspiration and, 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 and things that, that give it more of a face and, and a habitation and, and, a, and a substance, that's, that's great. But however it is, I feel like that faith is, is, you know, some people just lose lose it. They lose the glimmer. The second thing you also mentioned, which is service. And I think that's a critical element to getting through that dark valley. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but I want to touch the third, which is people. Um, mm. You know, there's, there's going to be someone out there who may not even be somebody you know yet who's going to have some kind of resonance with you. Like, you know, when you strike a... Uh, 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 an opera singer sings a high note and the glass shatters. That's resonance. When you when you strike a tuning fork and the piano string vibrates, that's resonance. When you meet someone for the first time and suddenly go, oh, I like this person, it's because there's a resonance. Love at first sight, it's resonance. Mm -hmm. And when I was going through that tragedy with my son, um, there was a person that we ended up doing some counseling with my wife and I doing some counseling with who was just – it was somebody I'd never met before, before this all happened, but there was a resonance there and they became, that person somehow became the personification of a lifeline that pulled me out. Um, I, I think that's what the chef is for the boy in this book, as well as the, 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 the waitress Ruth becomes a, uh, a lifeline of a sort too. But uh, I think that you, when you, when my son died, I, I was convinced for years that I was the only person on the planet who had had that happen. And there was nobody else who had a young child die. There couldn't be. It was just me. And I think it's a natural thing to do. Uh, we tend to, you know, they say when you, when you laugh, the whole world laughs with you. When you cry, you cry alone. Mm. When tragic things happen to us, we tend to shrink into ourselves and isolate and, and sort of lick our wounds and feel like this is my experience and nobody else understands it. It's not true. 
Uh, and one of the, the critical pieces, I think, to moving forward is to laying yourself open, being vulnerable to the signals out there because there will be people around you, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, who are little beacons of light that are bouncing their light off you that know what's going on. Maybe in not so many words, but they, they're going to resonate with you. Um, and so I think it's important to reach out as it is to reach out to others when they're suffering, even if they look cranky and, and shut off, you never know. Well, you know, as I you know went through ours, right? Not, I mean, there was a few people that we reached out to, um, but, you know, some of the people that I, you know, the the brightest spots kind of going through that was actually, you know, some of those people that actually reached out to me, had a profound yes. influence in my life, my wife's life. And, you know, if we really think about this, you know, this life and really kind of tapping into our greatness, I think a big part of that, you know, because my accident, um, we were told by the doctors was, was should not have been survivable. Yes. God, God intervened. I'll have to share you the whole story at some point, John. But God showed up at the accident, uh, took away the pain that I was in, actually spoke to me, um, let me know that he was going to you know, use this, heal me, use this for his glory. And man, it sure didn't feel and look like that for a no, long time. No, not at the time. Because <laughs> the recovery. But you know what? Um, you know, talk about tapping into our greatness. Imagine, you know, I really started thinking about this concept, you know, if I had died back then, yes. about inheritance, right? This is what I was going to, you know, leave to my wife and my kids financially, things like that. They were going to be fine. But I started thinking about, you know, what, um, from a legacy standpoint, what have I left in people? What have I left in my wife and in my kids and in the world around me? Had I lived yes. my life so the use of my life outlived my life? And that's where I was truly convicted. That's, that's what I think, you know, I, as a matter of fact, I know. That's what made me open to the first time in my life, I was 45 at the time, to hearing that voice, that quiet voice. You know, I wasn't ready to hear that calling because I was so focused on myself and my goals and what I was trying to do at the time. And, you know, uh, in the time since, I've been really trying to say, okay, how do I put everything together in a way that really equips other people to get the results that I'm having now and yes. myself and in the lives of others without getting thrown into a fence at full speed. Yeah, and you know yes. what, in the training that we do, it's called transformational leadership. One of our first concepts that we start out with, you know, we tell people that to really, you know, to, to, to do this, we are our metaphor that we use is we call it baking a leadership cake. And the first thing that we do, John, is we ask the audience, hey, what are some of the ingredients? And, in, you know, who likes to bake? You know, who likes to eat baked goods? That's usually more people than the bakers. But, you know, what are some of the ingredients? And they throw them out there, right? Like chocolate and sugar and baking powder and flour. But we talk about, you know, some of these ingredients on their own, they, you know what? They taste pretty good. You could sit down and have a bar of chocolate, some sure. sugar. But you wouldn't want to have a cup of flour for breakfast. Not, not so much. <laughs> so understanding what the ingredients are. And then you know what? We need tools to be able to put those ingredients together. We need mixers and bowls and ovens and all these kind of things. But to really make a good cake, right? We have a cake that our family loves and we call it hello cake because because every, every one of us knows, you know, maybe somebody in our life, when we have a get together for our family, we want that person to make that dessert because they just do it in a certain way, and it's amazing. And Hello Cake, uh, we call it that because my, my, my mother-in-law makes the best chocolate cake you've ever had. Mm. 
And we asked her for the recipe because she just does it by memory. And she wrote it all down on a hello, my name, you know, card is like kind of like a church <laughs> yes. get together. And so our whole family, we call it hello cake. But even though we follow exactly what she has on there, it's it is, you know, it's close. Uh, and we've kind of modified over time to make it as good as nannies. But mm. you know what? Having that recipe, and I think that's where a lot of things out there really fall short in equipping people. It's how do I put together those ingredients? What ingredients do I need? When do I put them in? What tools do I use? And that is the title of your book. And I'd love to ask you this question is right. This, this recipe, Mm. this book, you know, kind of puts together as people read this and go through this parable, you know, what is that one kind of key, you know, message at the heart of, of that recipe that's in this book? Uh, it's a great question. It's always um, it's so funny because uh, when someone says, "What's your book about?" You don't want to have four, five, six answers. You want to have one answer. <laughs> yeah, the other answers are all good too. But so in in the story, there are what the chef calls his rules of the kitchen, and as the story progresses, there turn out to be seven of them, and those seven rules of the kitchen uh, then turn out to be transmuted sort of into into seven rules for living, seven rules for, for life, his recipe for life. And there's even a military aspect toward the end. It turns out he's an ex-military guy and he had seven rules of combat as well, which are all about how to build your unit and keep your unit together in times of difficulty. But uh, so th- there are there's a whole series of rules um, and, and principles. But I'll, I'll tell you what's at the heart of it for me. And it's what goes uh, on the cover, what 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 gave the book its cover? If you see the cover of the book, mm-hmm. uh, either it's audiobook, ebook, the print book, whatever, it's all the same. You'll see on the cover a picture of a plate of blueberry pancakes with a single one-stem vase with a single peach rose in it, and it's from a scene in the book early on. This was the scene where the story came to life for me. Uh, It's a scene where the boy is remembering back many years earlier when his father was still alive. And one Saturday morning, they were cooking breakfast, breakfast for mom, which they were going to bring up to her to serve her breakfast in bed, Saturday morning. Mm. And uh, the boy's father is making this, his famous blueberry pancake recipe. By the way, this recipe comes from my wife. I ate this recipe for years before we wrote the book. It's delicious. The recipe is in the back of the book. So if you get the book, you need to try the recipe. It's very, very simple, but it's delicious. Anyway, uh, and it's gluten-free. Look at this. So, <laughs> so he's remembering his dad cooking this recipe, and he's, he's seen it. You know, he's eaten it many, many times. And he's, that morning he says to his dad, what makes your, 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 your pancakes taste so good? Is it the fresh blueberries? His father goes, no, it's it's not the blueberries. They're good. That's not what the what the secret ingredient is. Is it the oat flour? No, no, it's not the oat flour. Is it the is it the honey? Is it the maple syrup? He's trying to guess what's what's the secret, the magic. What's the secret ingredient? And finally, his dad gets down to his eye level and says, Owen says the secret ingredient isn't anything. In <clears throat> excuse me, I choke up when I say this sometimes. The secret ingredient isn't anything in the pancakes. The secret ingredient is who you're making them for. Mm. And, oh, and that's that, powerful. That to me is the is the love. It, it is the essence of the ingredients of greatness. It's the core of, of the book. And, and it's that third thing. You know, I mentioned when you're trying to get through hard times, you need hope and faith that anchors hope. You need other people that resonate with you. But also, and you mentioned this, to be in service – 
to make pancakes for somebody else, to write something, write a poem for someone, to help someone across the street, to help someone learn something, to help someone get through a difficult thing, to help someone with whatever you can do, uh, you, you, you lose yourself in an act of service, but you don't really lose yourself. You find yourself because you lose yourself, your small self, into something larger. Um, it's like a drop of water going into the ocean. You find something much larger, and that's that's the current of life itself. Um, so I guess that to me is there are in every domain, like in cooking, there are skills. And we, there's a lot of that in the book, the cutting, the peeling, the chopping, the washing, the combining, the way you use heat, the way you let things rest before you cook them and after you cook. There's a lot of technique in the book. I think the same thing is true in writing. It's true in speaking. It's true on the cello. It's true in everything. It's true in sales. It's true in real estate. It's true in everything you do. There, there are technical aspects and they're important. But the core skill and the core heart of, of the thing, whatever the thing is, is who are you doing it for and why are you doing it in, in service of what and of whom? Well, I, I think that's so powerful. But, you know, th- there's a definition of leadership out there that I believe was originally coined by John Maxwell, right? That a, a leader is somebody who has influence over just one other person, right? That makes all of us think of ourselves as leaders. And I, I would like to put forward a, another definition of leadership uh, that w- that I think is completely in line with this. And this is what Christ talked about, Right. So the definition of leadership is when we are willing to lay down our life for those that we lead or influence. And laying down our life doesn't mean our physical life. But what if we laid down our agenda, our priorities? And you know what? Some Some of the people that have had the most profound influence in my life that have been the most successful, and I always sought out mentors, John, that that were successful, not just in business, but in their marriage or their relationship with their kids. I was looking for somebody that was well-rounded because I knew that if I took their advice, I would probably get that success, the same success that they got. And the question is that the success that I want to have, but if I'm willing to kind of lay in, and so I've, I've, my life, my philosophy is, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. If I can help those around me be successful, whether I benefit, let's say financially or not, but that is the definition of my life. And this is what you're doing through this book is you're helping to up-level people, their relationships. I could see so many people out there, you know, everybody listening. I, I know that we have a lot of business owners, people my age, and you have kids. And we're all, you know, in this crazy world and the culture that's out there. How do we really, one of the biggest skills that's lacking are some of these, right, Our this next generation, millennials and the group behind them, they don't understand the ingredients. They don't understand what tools to use. And I really think they, they have a very, they don't have, they have very little clarity on what that, you know, recipe is on how to put these together. And if we can see it as our, this is kind of how I see my mission, right? There's this gap that exists, like between clarity and confusion, you know, between, you know, joy, even going through the trials and, and sorrow and despair, or, you know, between, you know, hope um, and, you know, darkness. And if we can be those people in our own lives that work on closing our own gaps in those areas and help other people to close those gaps, 
you know, talk about a, you know, a, a life worth living, being in a place of not, you know, smoldering discontent, but being in a place of, of just joy and growth and, you know, experiencing, um, just incredible victories because maybe we were even a catalyst in the, in the success of others. And I believe that that all the serendipity of all that feeds back into, I think the success that we'll enjoy if that's kind of the the heart that we have. I love it. I love it. And you know, the definition of a catalyst is it's a substance that, that doesn't get used up in the process of making the transformation. And, And you don't, you don't get used up because it feeds you, it nourishes you to be that, that spark for someone else. Um, I love everything you said. I just resonate with that like a, like a tuning fork. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And so, you know, I, w- I would love to sit. <laughs> I could sit here and talk to you, John, for the next couple hours and just go through all these, you know, these seven lessons. There's so many great points, you know, uh, you know, through this story that the chef shares with this this young boy and they're just so relatable and man i just really encourage everybody if you want a great book to sit down and go through that's just going to be not only fun to read but but equip you um you know to make a what i call a transformational change and you know transform transformation you know that is a change that is permanent right we we, you know what the outcomes the results things that are going on in our life right now it's the sum total of how we think how we feel how we act how we uh, understand ourselves our identity you know how we process and react to certain events and you know what we have to start peeling away maybe even some of the the lies uh, that we've accepted as truce from maybe things Mm. people have said to us or how we've maybe the context and how we've gone through experiences. And is there maybe a different way to look at things? Is there a different way to think that would serve us better? And and what you've put together in this book is that recipe on how to do that. And I think that is why this is so valuable because you bring it down into the that place where all of us can, um, you know, just look at those, you know, here's something that I can do a little bit differently today. Um, <clears throat> to get a little bit different outcome that's just going to build that relationship, get a different result. So, you know, thank you for that, John. So how do people, you know, find out more about you, get in touch, find out more about the book? Well, uh, I make it simple. I'm, uh, I put everything through my website, which is just my name. Oh, it's John David Mann. That's two N's at the end, johndavidmann.com. And all my books are there. Uh, my my blog is there, which is where I talk to myself in front of people, <laughs> <laughs> share my thoughts, and try to put them in, in into an arc that makes sense. Um, the 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 book, the recipe, also has its own site with some various extra goodies and things on it that relate to the book, uh, and that is at the website theingredientsofgreatness.com. TheIngredientsOfGreatness.com. And as we wrap up, John, what are just some final thoughts that you would just like to share with, with everybody listening? You know, the, the recipe is a story about this young boy who's a seeker. And, and that's, that's obvious. That's how it looks from the front. But if you turn it around, so to speak, and kind of look at it from the other side, it's also the story of the chef. Um, of the old man. And what uh, those of you who end up reading the book, I want to encourage you to look at how the chef mentors the boy because you can't, um, you know, people have asked me, what do you hope people take away from this book? I hope people take away from this book a 
new take on or a deeper sense of the impact you have on others, the way that you affect the others around you, because we're all mentors, uh, elected or not, intended or not, chosen or not. We're all mentors in that we affect those around us. And the sometimes the chef doesn't say what he's thinking. And, and the way he treats this fragile, delicate, wounded boy um, became quite inspiring for me as I kind of watched him unfold. And I, I would like to be more like him when I grow up. <laughs> so I just hope everybody enjoys the story and, uh, and that there's something in there that, that uh, blesses your life. Well, thank you. And it reminds me back to you. This brings me back to the first comment, uh, as I was thinking, right? Uh, as a, as a musician and a cellist and, uh, you know, I played violin growing up and, you know, there's a difference between, you know, playing music off of the sheet and doing the notes and starting to do this mechanically. And then what happens is as you do this and you, practice it it becomes your own and then you hit those those notes a little bit differently and they just resonate in this music even though Bach or Handel or whoever wrote it it now this becomes your interpretation of it um and what i would tell you guys is you know read a, you know a book like this look what's in there but make these principles make these interactions with people make it your own make it your own music not somebody else's idea but you look at this idea because it it's had those you know it's 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 been able to do this you know that it can help you get to a different place so um you know what uh we all got to start somewhere but as long as we're just making those small steps forwards and and i think you know activation precedes motivation so we might not be motivated to go through a long change process but if we can just find small little steps that we can do um, each day and start giving ourselves little successes, we can just slowly step into a different tomorrow. And that's what I encourage everybody out there to do. And thank you for giving us the, the recipe on how to do that, John. I just really appreciate you and, and what you're doing in your heart. I, I think it's awesome. Uh, thank you so much, John. I wish we'd stay for hours, but this has been a marvelous, wonderful, delicious time. Thanks for listening to Eternal Leadership. Be sure to check the summary of this MP3 for any important links and a link to the show notes for this episode. This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. In 1994, Bob Buford penned the book Halftime, moving from success to significance. And in the more than 20 years since then, more than three quarters of a million copies have been sold. It's touched baby boomers in the 90s, and it's now touching the lives of both Gen Xers who are in that midlife season asking, is this all there is? As well as baby boomers who are searching for significance in retirement. To get a free copy of the book, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. And after you read it, if you have any questions, you can have a no obligation one hour of halftime coaching. Eternalleadership.com slash halftime. You can't beat getting a free bestseller. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. <laughs>